Gary Tobbs is an investigative science and health journalist and co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative. He's the author of The Case for Keto, The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, and Good Calories, Bad Calories, published as The Diet Delusion in the UK. Tobbs is the recipient of a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research and has won numerous other awards for his journalism. Tobbs graduated from Harvard College with a bachelor's degree in applied physics and received a master's degree in engineering from Stanford and in journalism from Columbia. Today we talked about navigating education, what good science means, and why we get fat. Hope you enjoy. That's where I wanted to to start off. I mean, how did you get into all of this? You studied what applied physics and aerospace engineering before getting a degree in journalism eventually, right? Like was was that yeah. the plan? Okay. Well, no, there was no plan. When I grew up in the 60s, right, it was all, you know, my generation. I don't know. I wanted to be an astronaut. Mm. I was naive. I read science fiction books. I had an older brother who went off to study physics, who's a very intelligent man. And I was competing with him. So I studied physics. You know, I thought, what do astronauts study? By my junior year, when I got a C minus in quantum physics, my advisor very politely suggested that I find an alternative career path. And at that time, I had kind of fallen in love with writing. So the degree in applied physics was just, it was, easy. It was a degree I could get with three years of physics and a C minus in quantum physics. And I spent my senior year taking basically English courses. And I applied to graduate school at Stanford because I wanted to go to the West Coast. I mean, I was about as unserious a student as you could find at Harvard in the 1970s in studying physics. Got a degree in aerospace engineering because Stanford was silly enough to give me a scholarship <laughs> to go at the time. I think my advisor who was had been in the aerospace industry is still... 50 years later, trying to get the scholarship money back. He's still alive. Um, anyway, while I'm somewhere along the way, I read All the President's Men. And I had switched from reading science fiction to like noir detective fiction. And somehow being an investigative reporter seemed like the late 1970s version of being Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade private detectives. And so I applied to journalism school at Columbia. I got in because I had a science background and science writing was supposed to be the future. Mm. And a couple of years, actually, I didn't, I wanted to be an investigative journalist, but I couldn't get any serious job offers in journalism because I had no background in journalism. I didn't write for the Harvard papers. I didn't write for my high school papers. I couldn't even get into journalism symposia, seminars at Harvard and Stanford because I didn't write for the papers. I had no experience. So coming out of graduate school, the only job I could get that allowed me to stay in New York City was science journalism. And a couple of years into science journalism, I realized that there's some pretty bad science out there. And that if you think critically and you have common sense, you can challenge some of the research and everything sort of developed from there. Interesting. And how did, you know, nutritional science, diet science, like how did that all 
come into play? Was that sort of a natural progression for you? Was that of interest previously? No, not at all. Other than I had a mother who liked to tell us what the latest science said. <laughs> she read uh, the Science Times and she got, we got science news delivered back then. And she had two science-oriented sons. So she kept up by telling us that the studies say we should do this or we should eat that. And I often would say, you know, she would say, they say we should do this. And I would respond, who's they, mom? Do they know what they're talking about? And I used to joke that someday I would write a book called Who's They, Mom? about nutrition science. And I basically wrote that book eventually. I just gave it a different title, although it might have sold better had I called it Who's They, Mom? Um, the, uh, my first book... I went to uh, live at the physics laboratory CERN and follow what I thought was going to be a great discovery in high energy physics. And it turned out that these physicists had screwed up. And they, I spent 10 months, we would say today, I was embedded with the physicists, watching them realize how they had screwed up and learning about the checkered history of the physicists, the Italian physicist, Harvard professor who ran the experiment and had been wrong on many of his claims in the past. So I ended up writing an expose about high energy physics. When I finished that book, it turned out I continued doing science journalism. And it turned out that a lot of scientists had people similar to this physicist I had written about in their fields. So they would, I would tell them about this book I had written about dreams and this physicist, Carlo Rubia, and they would say, oh, if you think Rubia was bad, you should write about so-and-so, or you should cover this. Or, so suddenly I had people basically leaking me stories that the typical science journalist who sees himself as a translator of complex subjects to the lay public wouldn't have had access to. So I did a series of these investigations. I ended up writing a book on this scientific fiasco called Cold Fusion. And it was a big, great scientific fiasco of like the mid to late 20th century. I did it because I needed a paycheck. And that was offered a paycheck. This is, by the way, a lesson and not how unimportant it often is to not know where your career is going to take you. At the time, I was living in Los Angeles trying to write screenplays so I could move back to Europe, which I had fallen in love with writing Nobel Dreams. And my screenwriting career needed financing. So when Cold Fusion happened and my publisher asked me if I'd write a book on it, I said yes, assuming the book would take me nine months and I could bank enough money to write scripts for two years. And the book took me three years. And by the time I was done, I was... $40,000 in debt to my father. I've bonded a lot over the years with writers about how indebted we were to our parents and various courses in our career. And I had moved back to New York and the Cold Fusion book got good reviews, including a lengthy New Yorker review. And suddenly I was ensconced back in science journalism. As I was doing that book, I made a lot of friends in the physics community. And my first book as well, they all always appreciated my critical take on science. And they said, if you think the science of Cold Fusion is bad, you should see the crap in public health science. That's terrible. And at the time, they were interested in this idea that the electromagnetic fields from power lines cause cancer, brain cancer, and mm -hmm. leukemia, which was terrible science. 
and it was based on the field of risk factor epidemiology, which is the kind of stuff you read about in the papers every day when you read that, you know, vegetable oils increase or decrease your risk of heart disease or coffee increases your risk of, you know, pick your cancer. Or the, the most common one today is red and processed meats increase your risk of some cancer. That's all risk factor epidemiology or nutritional epidemiology when it comes to factors like meat. And my physicists, colleagues, friends thought it was a sort of pseudoscience. And it is a sort of pseudoscience. And so I, I wrote a piece on electromagnetic fields for the Atlantic and that science. And then I pitched an article on epidemiology itself to the journal Science. And now I was suddenly a sort of public health writer. And about happens. four years later, I stumbled into the nutrition field. It turned out that the science there was almost, from my perspective, incomprehensibly bad, although I've come to understand why it's bad. Mm -hmm. And I have never been able to get out. So I've been writing about that now for going on 25 years. That's quite the path. And, you know, I've, I've certainly got my own share of questions about a lot of the nutritional science stuff. But I mean, more broadly speaking, having all this experience and sort of embedding yourself in a lot of these areas and identifying, you know, good and bad science, do you have any sort of framework you've developed or process you've developed to sort of identify what constitutes good science or bad science? It's interesting. A lot of it is kind of intuitive. Often you're I'm making judgments about the scientists themselves. Right. I used to describe this to my friends. A lot of my writing friends are, you know, were English majors in college. And I say, you know, you could read, say, Norman Mailer and John Grisham and make a judgment that Norman Mailer is far the better writer, even if John Grisham's books sell an order of magnitude or two more. You know, and you have no doubt you're right. When it came to putting a sentence together, even a novel together, Norman Mailer's or, you know, Saul Bellow or pick your your author is better than John Grisham, but we understand why John Grisham is so marketable. In science, well, there's a good line I use in every, uh, pretty much every book I've written, with possible exception of the first, which is from Richard Feynman, the great Nobel laureate physicist, <clears throat> who said the first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. So if you're interviewing a scientist, a researcher, and he's using declarative sentences without conditions about what he thinks he's discovered, you begin to wonder, Does he is he aware how easy it is for him to be fooled? How the history of science suggests that no matter how confident he is, the most likely scenario is that he's wrong about, he or she is wrong about what they're telling you. And so you're dealing with a not very good scientist, and then you should be skeptical of the science they're telling you. And then the question is, is that skepticism enough to follow through with, and is there a story there? In fact, the first, very first story I did on um, nutrition, which was on this question, something we all still pretty much ubiquitously believe, which is that a salt-rich diet causes hypertension or high blood pressure, and you know, a healthy diet is a low-salt diet. And I stumbled into that field by accident. But the, one of the things that made me think was worth a story is I was interviewing a fellow at Northwestern University in Chicago who 
was telling me, I had come to the conclusion that there's a controversy, there was a controversy over salt and high blood pressure, whether salt was the cause of high blood pressure. And he was telling me that there's no evidence that it is. And as soon as somebody says no evidence, they're not speaking scientifically because if there's a controversy, clearly there's enough evidence to convince some people that there is, even if you don't personally find that evidence compelling. And a good scientist speaks precisely about what the evidence does and does not show. And a statement like there's no evidence is somebody who's clearly not thinking precisely or speaking precisely. So I actually got off the phone with this guy and I called up my editor at Science and I said one of uh, I was on the phone with him for about an hour and a half, and he was clearly one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed in my life. And he, uh, my second book on cold fusion was called Bad Science. And I thought, writing about that, I had interviewed the worst scientists in the world, but clearly I hadn't. I can't, you know, so I called on my editor and I said, look, one of the worst scientists I've ever interviewed in my life just took credit for putting us on the low salt diet we've been eating. I don't know what the story is there, but if this guy was substantively involved, there's a good story there. Because you could think of all of the scientific method and the critical skeptical thinking that's institutionalized in science is, is trying to prevent this process of fooling yourself. So you, you think you get the right answer. You know, you have a hypothesis or an idea that explains some phenomenon you're studying, and then everything else is supposed to sort of check you from falling in love with your hypothesis such that you interpret all the data as though it's correct. If you've ever been in love, and I once used this metaphor with a university administrator at the University of Utah talking about cold fusion, she said, why would all these scientists be so convinced it's right? And I said, well, have you ever fallen in love? Mm. And all your friends are telling you it's the wrong woman or the wrong man. <laughs> and you've got an explanation for everything for why he, they are wrong and you are right until, of course, eventually it blows up in your face. So anyway, I make those judgments about scientists <clears throat> every time I interview one. And if a scientist sounds like a good scientist the way Norman Mailer or Saul Bellow reads like a good writer, then I'm willing to trust what they're telling me. And if they don't, then I'm skeptical. And depending on how big the story, I start asking, is there a good story there? Gotcha. Now, now to move into the space of nutritional science, you know, obviously a lot of your work has been in and around that over the last, like you mentioned, just a couple decades. I mean, of, of course, lots of people are into diet nutritional science in like a very casual sense. You gave the, the explanation of your, your mother earlier on trying out yeah. diets, going vegan, gluten-free, keto, any of this stuff. It's, it's become quite trendy over the last few years in many ways. But what a lot of people, I guess, might not know and something I've discovered in reading a lot of your work is that there, there is a bit of contention that exists behind the scenes with regard to cause and effects, right? So I, I thought we should probably start with where the greatest level of consensus is, right? Which seems to be that there's basically, if you're talking about the, the, the fat argument, sort of cause and effect argument there, it seems to be that there's basically a mismatch between, I mean, the, the environment in which humans evolved and the landscape of food today, right? right? With this mismatch being sort of primarily responsible for more widespread obesity is that is that the case yeah i think that's and that's a good assessment that that's where the area of consensus is we all agree that somehow we're out of sync with our environment that the foods we're eating and the lifestyle we're living are not 
conducive to the organisms that we've we evolved to be right so then the question is you know and another area of consensus somehow is if we ate whole foods unprocessed foods in something close to their natural state that would take care of most of the problem mm. or much of the problem and but the scientific controversy then becomes what's wrong with the foods we eat is it we eat too much meat and we didn't involve to eat meat or we didn't involve to eat the kind of meat we eat or we didn't involve to eat processed meats or is it the fat content we didn't involve to eat as much saturated fat as we eat or as much vegetable oils as we consume or the kind of fats we consume is it the sugar content of the diet an argument that i've made we didn't involve to eat <clears throat> excuse me, you know, refined sugars, sucrose and high fructose corn syrup and anything but the tiniest quantity found seasonally in fruit. Is it the kind of carbohydrates we consume that, you know, refined processed carbohydrates? The latest sort of buzzword is it's ultra processed food in general, which is a way to sort of condemn everything. There are all ways to condemn everything in the middle aisles of the sure. supermarket. Michael Pollan famously called these things food-like substances, which I prefer <laughs> to ultra-processed foods. At least food-like substances doesn't pretend to be scientific. Ultra-processed foods kind of does. So there are all these different, you know, do we just eat too much and exercise too little that our modern mechanized worlds? You know, I live in Oakland, California. I leave my house roughly once every other day, you know, that the humans arguably did not evolve to be even, you know, close to that sedentary. Is that the problem? So, you know, in all these spaces, there are people making arguments for what the cause of these common chronic diseases are, all of which associate with obesity and diabetes. So obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, hypertension, you know, they all, dementia even, they all sort of associate together in populations and they tend to cluster together in patients. And so it's reasonable to believe that what causes one of them causes all of them. And then the question is what aspect of this out of sync food environment or lifestyle environment is causing it? That's where the controversy is. Gotcha. And so to narrow in on that a little bit, right? Like it seems like correct me if I'm wrong here, obviously, that a large portion of the disagreement in the obesity debate in particular is whether cause and effect points to the brain versus fat cells or insulin as like the primary determinant of fatness in general. And, okay. and your argument is, as far as I understand it, that the brain is responding to what happens in the body rather than than causing it, right? Like basically that we, we don't get fat because we eat too much. We eat too much because we're getting fatter. Is that right? Yeah, basically. Yeah, the this is one of my primary contributions. And the fact that this comes from a journalist makes it effectively impossible to believe. Hmm. But nonetheless, I'm going to argue that it's Undeniable. Since 1930, roughly, the conventional wisdom, until 1930, the conventional wisdom 
thinking on obesity was that maybe it's caused by eating too much, but a lot of overweight people don't eat very much at all. And so it's clearly uh, hereditary because obesity tends to run in families. So maybe there's some hormonal endocrine constitutional issue going on. And the entire science of obesity was maybe a half dozen physician scientists around the world who were musing on this causality question. There was no way to experiment on obesity. So um, 1930, a University of Michigan physician named Lewis Newberg claims to establish definitively the overeating hypothesis of obesity. And from here on in, you can never say that obesity is a hormonal defect, that some people get fat because some part of the endocrine system is dysregulated. And um, by 19, late 1930s, Newberg's ideas have been, once they have animal models of obesity, you can now do experiments and the Newberg's overeating thinking is used to interpret the animal experiments and post-World War II, a whole community of researchers grows up believing obesity is caused by overeating, taking in too many calories than you expend. And overeating is a behavior, not a physiological state, it's a behavior, eating too much and sedentary behavior. So by the 1960s, you've got a field that's actually dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists who are trying to get people to fat people to eat less, to put it bluntly. And the field kind of goes off the rails from then when the hormone leptin is discovered in 1994, turning obesity into a subdiscipline of molecular biology. The assumption is leptin is a satiety hormone. The fat tissue's way of telling the brain that you got to stop eating so much. And every virtually everything else has been interpreted in that light, effectively, essentially. And you know, I'm sure a few papers haven't, but 99.999% of the literature is interpreted in this energy balance thing. And obesity researchers will tell you it's obvious, it's the laws of thermodynamics, and anyone who argues otherwise doesn't believe in physics. The counter argument is that it's a hormonal defect. So some people, just as some people are constitutionally predisposed to grow tall, some people are constitutionally predisposed to grow fat, and that's a sort of hormonal endocrine regulatory, you know, in height it's growth hormone and something called insulin-like growth factor in fat accumulation, it turns out it's the hormone insulin responding to the brain. And, and the all of this was worked out in the field of researchers studying fat metabolism. But the weird thing about this history is the researchers studying obesity, the disorder of excess fat accumulation, had no context, no contact with the researchers studying fat accumulation itself. Hmm. They were like physiologists working with lab models. So you have a science of obesity, it's caused by eating too much, that is completely disassociated from the science of fat storage, which is it's dominated by the hormone insulin, which responds to the carbohydrate content of the diet and links obesity intimately to type two diabetes, which it is linked. So anyway, this is what I've sort of, I was the first one to ever go back into this research thanks to the invention of the internet. I did this between 2002 and 2007 and put together this history. And the history is pretty clear. Once obesity researchers decided that we get facts, we eat too much, they 
started studying why obese people might eat too much as opposed to studying why these people might accumulate too much fat, which is a fundamental disorder. And you, I've been trying and others now. And in fact, there's a paper coming out in two weeks, a big review in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Excuse me, my... Anyway, there's a review article coming out in the... Uh, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, September 13th, making the arguments basically that I just gave you in short form. And we have first author, the principal author is David Ludwig, a professor at Harvard. And we have myself and then 15 other very well-respected academic researchers saying, in effect, look, we've been laboring under the wrong paradigm, mm. literally, in the Poonian sense. Anyway, and, and if you fix the paradigm... It's not about how much you eat or exercise. It's about the carbohydrates you eat, creating this sort of hormonal milieu that fosters fat storage. Um, you begin to make progress against the problem. And that this, this idea, oh, since obesity associates with heart disease, diabetes, cancer, stroke, dementia, all this thinking on obesities and energy balance infects all those other fields as well. Right. And like I said, because I'm a journalist, not an obesity researcher, the odds that I'm right about what I told you, compelling as it may sound, are tiny. <laughs> so uh, to, to, to get into the case for keto here and tying in what you were talking about mm -hmm. with this, this sort of endocrine hypothesis, is it, is it, what is it about high fat, low carb diets that, that work? Does it just boil down to avoiding elevated insulin levels? Cause from, from what I understand and what you were talking about before, elevated insulin basically shuts down the use of fatty acids as, as fuel, right? So you, you burn less fat and you become fatter. Is that sort of the idea? That's the idea. Yeah. When you, so insulin is created in response to the carbohydrates in the diet. You also get simplest way to say it. And, and the idea is it's trying to keep blood sugar low because high blood sugar is toxic. And one way it does that is by signaling lean tissue, your muscles and organs to take up the blood sugar as blood sugar starts rising to take up the glucose and burn it for fuel. And the other way it does that is it signals the fat cells to take up all the fat that might be circulating and just keep that stored. So you could think of it as it wants to get blood sugar burn taken up. So it wants to get the alternative fuel out of the way. And it's telling the cells, look, burn the carbs because we got carbs coming in and we can't let that situation get out of control. And meanwhile, we'll hold on to the fat. And as insulin, the carbs get taken care of and insulin levels start coming down, the fat starts to get released from the fat cells and mobilized and used for fuel. So you burn carbs, you know, while you're eating and after the meal, and then as carbs start coming, your blood sugar starts coming down, you replace that fuel source with fat. Ideal world, it flip-flops back and forth all day long. So the idea is, and this was demonstrated exclusively by the 1960s, fat cells are exquisitely sensitive to insulin. That's the term that the fat metabolism researchers would often use, exquisitely sensitive. It's the most sensitive tissue in your body to insulin. So when insulin is secreted, fat cells, even if there's just a little bit left in the circulation, fat cells are going to try and hold on to the fat they've stored. 
And so the idea is if you want to get the fat out of your fat cells and burn it for fuel, you have to minimize your insulin levels. The fat will come out and be used for fuel when insulin's at a minimum. The way you do that is you remove the carbohydrates in the diet and you replace it with fat. So a ketogenic diet is a diet that sort of maximally removes carbs and replaces it with fat because fat's the one macronutrient that doesn't stimulate insulin secretion. Some 60% of the amino acids and protein are converted to glucose, carbohydrates, so they'll stimulate some insulin secretion. Um, fat doesn't. So that's the logic behind the ketogenic diet. The case for keto is in effect that some of us are so sensitive to insulin for whatever reason that if we want to achieve and maintain a healthy weight, we basically have to remove, you know, again, effectively all the carbohydrates from the diet and uh, replace those calories with fat. And then you're in ketosis. The diet is technically ketogenic. And, but what you're trying to achieve is minimal insulin levels. Seems like pretty straightforward advice. And the argument is, you know, like lean people are fine. They don't have this problem. They can eat carbs and they're, they're in, you know, fat cells will take up some fat and then it'll release it and it'll, they'll stay lean. This is what I don't, you know, it's funny because a lot of the pushback I get, particularly on Twitter uh, media, I should stay off of, <laughs> is from like the bodybuilders who say, look at what I did with my body, and I eat 400 carbs a day, therefore you can't say carbs are fat. And I have to say, have you ever considered the fact that what your body does when it eats carbohydrates is different than what an obese person's, a person with obesity's body does when they eat carbohydrates? And uh, I don't get reasonable answers from the body. Nobody's ever said to me, you know, that's a good point. I think you might be right. <laughs> well, for the rest of us, I guess it's, it's pretty straightforward. Thank you for doing this. This has been a really great experience. Okay. My pleasure. Take care. Alex. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.